Thanks for reading that, Clark. And I'm gonna also um, read a text as well. These are both from our lectionary for this week, um, for Advent week three, year C, if you're interested. Clark read from Isaiah, and I am going to read to you from the Gospel of Luke. This is chapter three, verses seven through 18. I'm also reading from the, uh, the inclusive version today. John said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, you pack of snakes who warned you to escape the wrath to come. Produce good fruit as a sign of your repentance and don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Sarah and Abraham as our mother and father, for I tell you that God can raise children for Sarah and Abraham from these very stones. The ax is already laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and tossed into the fire. When the people asked him, what should we do? John replied, let the one with two coats share with the one who has none. Let those who have food do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and they said to John, teacher, what are we to do? John answered them, exact nothing over and above your fixed amount. Soldiers likewise asked, what about us? John told them, don't bully anyone, don't accuse anyone falsely, be content with your pay. The people were full of anticipation, wondering in their hearts whether John might be the Messiah. John answered them all by saying, I am baptizing you with water, but someone is coming who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to untie. This one will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. A winnowing fan is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the granary, but the shaft will be burnt in unquenchable fire. <laughs> Using exhortations like this, John proclaimed the good news to the people. We hear the voice of God in these words. Thanks be to God. Well, <laughs> I, John had at least one thing right in his intense speech. It would be an upheaval. <laughs> this coming Messiah would turn the world upside down, would change things, alter history. Christ would and will redefine everything we thought we knew about how to be in this world it would be an upheaval. And I think that is why deep abiding joy is so difficult for us to face because it results in an upheaval as well. We're in week three of Advent, the theme is joy and nothing will point out the places where scarcity mindsets are still alive in us quite like joy. And nothing will challenge us to embody the abundance paradigm we like to talk about quite like joy. In other words, the work of joy is exactly that. It is work and it is highly uncomfortable work. And I think whether the idea of joy invokes in you a grief or an annoyance or even anger, I think the overall shared feeling might be fitting to describe as disappointment. Because the message that we are sent about joy is that it should be easy. And I think about those hit workouts that I really love to do, but how I always hear the leader saying smile when, hey, I, I'm dying over here. I am not trying to smile in this workout. <laughs> and of course, being a woman, 
being told to smile is like a thing that happens your whole life. But I even notice in myself a tendency to try and force my daughter into joy when an emotional state is inconvenient for me as a parent. My autopilot wants to shoo away any other big feelings she might have. Just be happy. <laughs> and of course, we can't talk about joy without shouting out social media and the way it spreads the mistruth daily that everyone but us is perpetually on vacation or that every relationship but ours is perfect. And so we get this message drilled into our subconscious that joy is supposed to be easy and that something is wrong with us if we aren't in joy all the time. But it turns out nothing is wrong with you if you resonate with any of that. Um, because our authentic faith work is revealing to us that actually joy is really hard to come by and even harder to sustain. And actually joy is a part of the spirit work. It's part of our liberation assignment and not just joy out there, like giving joy, spreading joy. That's the easy part, right? But cultivating joy within us, that's a really tough one, but this, it is this joy that springs up from within us, this Imago Day informed joy. It is this joy that energizes us to do all that joy giving in a way we can sustain. And so this joy is really, really important. This joy is not to be neglected. And yet we are resistant to facing the work this joy requires of us. And why wouldn't we be? The stakes are high, the work is deep, and the risk is great because we risk our own hearts our own abilities to go on. And on top of this, during the holidays, especially, we feel this pressure to latch on to a version of joy that we don't like because we are authentic people. And so we can spot pretend joy from a mile away and we don't want to be forced into it. We are liberated people who don't like being told what to do. And yet, ironically, here's a paradox about us. We also really want to be told what to do. <laughs> We're doing this work of shifting our beliefs, our theology, our language, our paradigms. We're compelled to make this shift. We're wanting to do it, but it's an upheaval. We've lost a lot of certainties and we want to know how to proceed. What do we do? And it's funny because in our reading today, the crowd asks literally the same question. What should we do? And the tax collectors are asking, what do we do? And the soldiers are saying, teacher, what about us? And it's just a, a whole mood, right? It's a whole mood because the question of the day, of the week, of the season, of history remains the same still. The world is a mess, we're struggling, and we wanna know, what do we do? And it's funny, it makes me think about Fran's sermon last week and how she was like, we don't usually tell you what to do, but this week I'm gonna tell you what to do a little bit. And the rest of us were relieved, like finally, yes, explicit directions, yes, for once. <laughs> and this is the story of our text. It's what John is being asked. And I connect this lingering unending question with our Isaiah reading today, which Clark read and specifically verse three, which I love where it says, God has become my salvation and with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And I wonder, could joy and salvation be connected? And I've said this a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, but I don't think I can say it enough. So I'm going to say it again. My definition of salvation is as simple as new life. 
And it's easy enough to get this, right? Because our old paradigms told us a pretty similar thing. To know salvation is akin to being born again into a new life. And I think there's some truth here for us still. We experience deaths and resurrections all the time in our faith context, our faith journeys, in our lives, in the cycles of the seasons, in the earth, in social paradigms. We explicitly experience it with every loss of a loved one and every new birth. We experience deaths and resurrections in small and big ways all the time. And with each of these comes a new version of us. When you have been through the fire, when you've been through trauma, tragedy, a pandemic, even incredible highs, you are changed by these things. You experience deaths in these things and you are not the same person as you were before on the other side of them. So I define salvation as our consciously stepping into new life. And I always connect salvation with liberation because with this new life, comes new ways of seeing and being and existing and doing. So whenever I talk about liberation, I'm talking about our resurrection work, our heaven on earth work, our ultimate work that we're compelled to do because we're people of faith, meaning there is some sort of divine hope prompting our forward movement, posturing us towards the things of new life, salvation. And I'm feeling validated in my beliefs by all this, by John's response today, as people are asking again and again, what should we do? Because his instructions are liberation instructions. Let the one with two coats share with one who has none. Let those who have food do the same, exact nothing over and above your fixed amount and so on. These are liberation instructions. And if liberation is still too intimidating or big a word for you, all he's really saying is embody your faith. Live a life that is consistent with what you say you believe. With urgency, embody liberation. And everyone, including yourself, should be benefiting from this embodiment because the point of our resurrection work, our justice work, our liberation work, however you want to say it, is not to drain ourselves dry. It's not to become martyrs. The point is not suffering. It is our collective movement away from suffering. This is liberation. It is the embodied realization of our oneness. This realization has the power to change our world. But to do that, upheaval, individually and collectively, inner and outer, is required. So John is saying it's not enough to just say we believe what we believe. We've got to be moving because nothing less than an embodied liberation is what it means, quote, to produce good fruits as a sign of repentance. What if our repentance was the active acknowledgement that there are things about us and our societies that need to be undone? What if our repentance was the awareness that there is more for us to become? What if we consistently made moves that bore fruit worthy of these truths? I think our lives would look different. I expect our world could be made new. Perhaps with joy, we might draw from these wells of salvation. Advent is a season of expectation. 
which is the whole reason why we highlight the story of John throughout it, because John spoke explicitly of this messianic coming, Messiah, meaning savior, savior, meaning our salvation. John prepared the way for an embodied God on earth, Christ on earth. This divine embodiment is our salvation every time it gives us clarity with those eternal what should we do questions. And so Advent has some meaning for us because it compels us not to shy away from the work, not to shy away from the challenges of hope and peace and today joy. Advent won't let us off the hook from this terribly vulnerable and downright hard work of cultivating joy within us. Advent asks us to focus on our own messianic expectation and preparation. And when we embody this Advent work, when we move from belief to action, as John suggested, guess what? It changes us. New life. We're changed. I am not the person I was last Advent or the one before. Here's an example. I've been observing Advent as long as I can remember. And after 30 years of it, this year is my first year to look at the text and go, oh, John prophesied about the coming of Jesus, but he in his own humanness didn't exactly hit the nail on the head perfectly. I mean, he got the gist of it. Okay. But if you look at the Messiah described by John in the text today, and then if you go and read all four gospels of Jesus's stories, who he was, what he did, what he taught. I mean, to me, it doesn't even sound like the same person. <laughs> John talks about this intense, mighty warrior with a winnowing fan in his hand. But the only thing I see Jesus throwing in unquenchable fire is our understanding of power and our unmovable prescri prescriptions about God. Okay, so that's like the kind of stuff Jesus was. So he was right. He had it right. But I think, he, you know, he's still human, right? What John expected, what any of us would have expected is not what we got. We got a full human with a full range of emotions who valued gentleness, meekness, loving kindness, radical openness. We got a person who could have been front and center in his context, but who instead chose solidarity with the suffering. We got a man who lived and moved and preached from the margins and gave voice to those people in spaces. That's what we got. It wasn't what any of us would have expected, and it likely wasn't what John quite expected, but John didn't try and change Jesus to perfectly fit the mold of his prophecy. Instead, John did the shifting. John did the embodying work he preached about, and we can do it too. And it doesn't have to be some grand gesture. In fact, we are empowered to start small. <laughs> this is what I love so much about Jesus. His attention to what's otherwise neglected, his consistent attention and embrace of the small things. Everything Jesus said and embodied teaches us, first and foremost, that total presence is what we should embrace so that we don't miss the obvious, so that we don't miss what's right in front of us. And this includes joy, by the way. So to follow Jesus is a commitment to the small things 
the small progress. It's taking notice of the mustard seed. It's taking notice of the one lost coin. It's taking notice of the one sheep out of a hundred. It's taking notice and practicing presence daily. It's not a magic trick or a platitude or a big leap. It is clawing our way toward healing and calling every small success our salvation. I've always said that I was born with a propensity for joy. My middle name is literally joy. It's just part of my disposition, a little superpower of mine that I'm grateful for. And yet looking at the world, the times we're living in, it's so overwhelming. Even for me, I go to sleep nearly every night, heavy from the weight of the world, fearing for my loved ones, incredibly anxious about our collective future. Most nights I go to bed with dread about facing it all again another day. And the only way I know how to survive this is by constantly searching for the small joys, recognizing them, pointing them out, and damn it, taking them whenever I can get them. <laughs> because honestly, don't we all know by now that joy is hard fought and we can't afford not to embrace it every single time we spot it. <laughs> Jesus was constantly spotting joy alongside his praying, teaching, healing, and liberating. So it's like, what more permission do we need? <laughs> but in case I'm not being clear, let me just say this to whoever needs to hear it explicitly this morning, you are not unworthy of joy. You are not bad for stopping to experience joy. In fact, it is not enough to create the moments or spaces for other people. You are obligated to do this for yourself as a part of our collective liberation work. Okay, <laughs> so today is known as Gaudete Sunday in church tradition. Gaudete is Latin for joy. So this is the Sunday where we finally get to light that rose-colored Advent candle. Woo! My daughter's going to be so excited later. Purple represents penitential uh, seasons in the church calendar. It's a penitential color. Advent, like Lent leading up to Easter, it's a penitential preparatory season. But the pink candle represents a reprieve. It's saying, even in this darkness, even in this waiting for something more, yes, even now, in this chaotic, often depressing, overwhelming state of affairs we call our world, even here, joy is worthy of our time and attention. Joy is worthy of our investment. And joy is worth the risk required of us when we choose to step into its work. We have been called to draw from this well. May joy provide us the hydration we need to carry on inch by inch, even here, even now. May joy be our salvation. Amen.